I write better when I am emotionally charged in right, some way or right. other. The writing is better because it's got a, like a, an energy behind it, a push behind it. So in some way you're finding things to trigger that passion. In the outro for this episode, I'm going to make a proper full announcement of this. But for those of you who don't get that far, Getting Bear Acquainted is going to be going on hiatus once it hits 350 episodes so there'll be a bit of a break and then there'll be a christmas episode which will be the 350th episode and there'll also be a getting better acquainted extra in the new year but after that getting better acquainted is taking a break there still may be things going out on the feed so please keep subscribed and look out for new content that comes out if you have been listening to getting better acquainted Uh, since 2011 when it started or if you've joined me at any other point between then and now then do reach out to me in this kind of end point or or potential end point for the show and let me know how it's been being a listener over the years I've occasionally had people reach out and send me emails and make comments and give reviews and speak to me in person about how the show has affected them so that's happened from time to time but I also always get a sense that there's lots of people who listen to this show who don't necessarily reach out and talk to me about it I mean I listen to loads of podcasts myself and I don't reach out and talk to the creators of those podcasts so I'd really love to hear from you and hear your thoughts about being a getting better acquainted listener and I will probably share some of those responses in the Christmas special uh, the 350th episode of the show so if you don't want me to read out what you're sending me make it explicit and say that you don't give permission for me to use it but I'd love to hear how you found the ride like I'm very aware that 2018 me is not the same as 2011 me I'm also aware that the show has had larger amounts of listeners at some times and smaller amounts of others so I'd love to hear from people who've listened to Getting Better Acquainted uh, what they've found uh, from that process of listening to me changing uh, and talking to people about their lives. Podcast at gmail.com is the email address to use to send those thoughts or you can find me on Twitter at Goosefat101. But anyway, that's enough from me. Here's today's episode. So that's how I started my poetry journey, thinking, hmm, I could do that. That's how yeah. I started my journey doing teaching seeing other people run sessions thinking, oh, I could probably do that. So it's the same thing was the music. Oh, I could do that. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. So today we're getting better acquainted with Louise. Hello, Louise. Hello. (laughs) And uh, yeah, this is kind of a monumental episode in some ways, because this is going to be 349. After this, there's going to be a break, then there's going to be the Christmas special and the New Year extra episode, and then I'm taking a break. Uh, I'm putting this project on hiatus, so I'm glad to have got you on, because I've been trying to get you on for quite a few years of the project, so it's, yeah. it's great to get you on uh, for the kind of last, kind of the last episode for the moment. Um, and uh, we're recording in your house uh, in Wigan. Yes. So thanks for having me. Not a problem. My <laughs> beautiful three-bedroom terrace, they're very cheap in Wigan. <laughs> <laughs> like, we'll get into that with the first question, but um, yeah, in fact, I'll, I'll just ask it. 
Um, so how do you know me? Okay, so Dave, I know you because uh, we were at university together. Uh, we were in different years, so as in theatre studies with creative writing, you were in a different year from me, but then um, you decided to put on a show at Edinburgh and right. advertise for other students to be part of that show. And I think maybe three people out of my year came and said, yeah, we'll work on a show for Edinburgh. And that was my first ever Fringe. I didn't really know what the Fringe was before I went up. Right, so mine, mine too. Yeah. I think, yeah. As a performer, I'd been the year before me and Matt and uh, Richard and people who were in the company had gone up as punters to check out what Edinburgh was actually like. Um, and yeah, the first time I went up as a performer was the show that I did with you. I don't think I'd heard of The Fringe. I didn't really know it. Well, I'd kind <laughs> right. of vaguely heard of it. I didn't really know. I have no, no understanding of its position within culture or theatre making or anything. So right. it was like really amazing experience for me. Yeah, me too. It sort of changed my life, really. And it's interesting, as, like, so yeah, we went to Lancaster University together, different years, did the same course, though, essentially, because yeah. I, did, I did creative writing as well. Um, and yeah, like, it's been a long time between then and now. Yeah. I mean, me and my partner, like I was saying to you earlier on, it'll be 18 years in February, which means it's been 18 years since I started uni, a year more for you, so yeah. 19. And now we're essentially doing very similar things. Yeah. Like we're both freelancers in the arts, um, but we've, you know, both gone on very different journeys to get to where we're at now. Yeah. Um, and it's it's interesting because when, when we did that show, when we took that show to Edinburgh, um, it was a devised show about time. Um, <laughs> a stitch in a Yeah, stitch, a, stitch a stitch it was called. Yeah. And I'd never done a devised show, really. I was a writer. Um, so that was an interesting process, devising. Um, and you, at that time, I think you would have defined yourself as a dancer? Yeah, I didn't speak in that. I didn't really speak much during well, uni in any of my shows. I just danced. Yeah, but you, but you <laughs> or, did... Or um, was sort of like a creative sort of thinker but you, know, you like did drive you did speak in that show because you did you wrote a poem oh i don't remember this <clears throat> yeah you wrote a poem and it was a like you did a sort of a poem but it had movements as well so you were doing this it was kind of one of the main i don't know backbone of that show it was a very strange show see it's so funny like and things you remember you forget so i remember dancing in it because i remember the frock i was wearing and i remember richard and matt i think devising a scene and me scripting it afterwards and that's the first time I'd ever scripted anything so I don't know if it was Richard Matter or if it was you but it was the one that the literal timeshare salesman right so it was about a character who um literally sells time yes and you could buy Tom Cruise time or whatever yes so I remember that because I remember scripting from the device and I don't remember writing a poem for it which is strange because I was writing poetry obviously at uni yeah and it's, well, that's <laughs> int- it weird what you so it's get? interesting so now your Twitter handle is Louise the Poet right it is, yes. whereas back then like you were a dancer and mm. like poetry was the thing you were doing on the side in secret like almost and it wasn't kind of part of your identity whereas now it's like more of a part of your identity than dance probably yeah and but what's so strange is that right now I'm just in a process of really coming back to dance so for the past few years I have worked with dancers and dance companies because I still have a passion for dance 
but I've been working with them in ways where we'd work with community groups and there'd be a dance element and there'd be a writing element and then we'd look at how that might work in performance. Um, and I did get a commission a, a few years ago with a Wigan Literature Festival to create a piece for young people using dance and poetry, but the emphasis has been on me working with dancers because I love dance and I want people to see dance as opposed to me dancing. Whereas now with the new music project, I'm starting to explore me as an actual dancer again, which, you know, like I'm 40 now. Wow, I know you can't tell. Um, Yeah, so it's like, oh, like I'm just starting this now again, which is quite exciting. Yeah. Well, I mean, like that's the thing, like people think of dance as like a young person's thing but it's not you know like actually some of the best dance I've seen um has been from older people if you like like you know some of the amazing performances I've seen at Edinburgh have been like you know people in their 70s and 80s doing dance can be like amazing to see sorry my watch beeped it's got some (laughs) random alarm settings which I don't know how to work my Casio um well, um, I recently did a community project as a dancer. Um, it was just a call out from Ludus Dance Company for people who wanted to get involved in a project called Mill Girls and Militants, looking at the suffrage movement from, but from a working class point of view. Um, and one of my friends, who's a dance artist I've worked with, was working on the project, and she just—I think they were struggling for numbers at the early stages. Um, and she was like, "Oh, do you fancy doing it?" And I was like, "Yeah, actually, I want to do it not as an artist, not as a leader, not as the brains behind it, but just as like a normal person enjoying dance." and um, it was so fulfilling and amazing like I learned a lot about suffrage movement but I learned that about re-enjoying dance again so it was like, really exciting for me that's amazing I mean that's the thing because you, you you know I remember you as a great like mover like your your movements were amazing but you you know your words were great too I think like in that in that show we did um, but it's interesting that you don't remember writing them I or saying I don't them. I really don't. I vaguely remember doing like my first ever open mic at uni um, because I know we'd already agreed to sign up for this show and then three of us um, did poems at this open mic thing but open mic wasn't something I'd really heard of. Like In Wigan it was, wasn't a very diverse cultural experience, there wasn't a lot to do so lots of things when I went to uni for the first time yeah. that I'd, I'd ever done anything or heard of. Oh, this is an open mic. What's yeah. It? I mean, because were you you were you still were you living in Wigan and commuting um, to Lancaster? I, I lived in Lancaster for the first two years. Then I took a year out, moved back to Wigan, and then in my third year, I was commuting to Lancaster. In my third year. That's right, because so I think you were commuting when we were making it was, the show. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, like it's 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 interesting, like. Then I remember thinking, oh, she's commuting such a long way. And actually, you're not. <laughs> no, you were. Like, and like, you know, late, 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 <laughs> late, you know, once I finished uni, I'd be commuting to Preston and Leyland uh, for all of my work, my, when I was working. And like, I've, I came to realise how small these distances essentially were. Mm-hmm. But at uni, everything seemed a long way away. <laughs> um, and it's, it's funny as well, because like, so we didn't meet in, again after uni until... I was doing um, the first year I took stand-up tragedy to Edinburgh and that was like in the earlier days of the show so I didn't have as many contacts in the arts. I mean, I made a lot of contacts that year that I then would, you know, build on. Um, But like 
I was just kind of booking anyone I knew and I hadn't heard what you did I sort of like booked you unknown <laughs> and like you blew me away you know your poetry set was like you know like another level like at that time as well I was discovering what performance poetry kind of was yeah. as well so I wasn't like used to like now I expect kind of almost to go to a spoken word show and be blown away because I've seen so many good yeah. stuff uh, but then I was like wow you know like your the, the set you did like was yeah one of my favorite things from that first year and also yeah like um because it's not always the case when you haven't seen someone for ages and you book them to do mm. y- your show that they uh, that they do something good. And I, I had a few experiences like that, that Edinburgh. So it was great to like find out what you were doing after all that time. And, and it was really good for me, one, to ha- like have these little guest slots in Edinburgh because that was my first opportunity to perform at the Fringe uh, and then get a sense of, oh, could I come with a solo show? So it was really good for me developing as an artist. But then the year that you had um, people as guest hosts and guest programming that was really good for me because that was my first opportunity to program and right. now since then I do a lot of programming of events and programming artists so it's strange from yeah being at university together largely and not really being in contact right. that just meeting in a kind of in through the arts and arts ways it's been a big impact on me in terms of my development so thank you yeah. I mean yeah I mean I think you've been similar for me I feel like like it's like yeah, we after I booked you that first time, we sort of saw each other in Edinburgh, and then we also saw each other in London um, when Richard Tyrone Jones was putting on some kind of oh, yeah. thing, and there were poets kind of coming down for that. And I remember like having a, a chat with you about freelancing and stuff like when I just started freelancing myself, and yeah, uh, and that was really helpful and, and useful. Um, and but yeah, like. A, a, uh, at various times during the years I've been doing this show, I've been like, we should get together and record. Yeah. And then it's just never... No, The way the not. world works, or the arts works, is that you, you sort of last-minute cancellations happen all the time. Um, and, you know, you're balancing a lot of stuff as well, because you're mm. not just... Um, you're not just a kind of unencumbered person working in the arts. You've got kids and stuff like that, so that makes a lot more requirements on your life. Um, so it's impressive to see what you what you what you do I mean because I'd say you're you know you're you're getting a lot more kind of regular work than I am at the moment I mean not that I'm comparing myself endlessly to other people although of course I am (laughs) (laughs) but I mean you're you're making it work and you've been doing it a while right freelancing I I guess the second question I ask everybody is is what do you do now so I guess I'm kind of getting into the same question with what Mm. I'm saying okay so um I would say I'm a poet and that feels like the first thing I do. But anyone who knows anything about the professional lives of poets knows that poetry doesn't really pay. So when you're saying I'm a professional poet, what you're really saying is I'm someone who performs, so I get paid to perform. I'm someone who teaches, so I get paid to teach creative writing and or drama, or mixes of that from not to five all the way through to older people. I've worked with any group you can imagine, because I just love people. Yeah. So, actually the people side of it is the easy side for me and I know some artists struggle with that right. they're great at creating their work and developing the skills to work with people is harder whereas for me I spent a lot of time working with people in loads of settings so that bit is the easy bit and the bit where is more challenging is the about where you're creating your own art and making your own stuff so I do a lot of teaching which I love and um events organizing making things happen yeah. because I'm quite org- quite organised and I get I know I kind of 
can work pragmatically and I think often artists struggle with that as well so I often think well if I don't do it it's not going to happen yeah I mean you're one of those people I mean they're really important in the arts and I think sometimes I can be one of those people of like you connect people together and like that's super important and as you say a lot of artists uh, of all stripes don't like that's not their natural way of being they're not necessarily very social and so people who kind of go, oh, you and you, you, you could do similar things, you should speak. You know, so, so like without that, there'd be no art scene, you know. Mm. And, you know, you're up like in the north kind of doing that here, like which is, I, I guess, easier and harder in, probably because it's like there's maybe less like less of an art scene but like less of an art scene means it's not oversaturated in the arts like in London it's so super hard to to do anything because everybody's doing everything every all you know all over the place so you're all competing with each other whereas in the north it's more like solidarity and support for each other I guess yeah it definitely is like I feel like there's lots of high quality stuff that happens but yeah it's not saturated and it's not too dense so it's not there isn't something you can go to every night of the week or there is but you have to travel on it I expect that right um and um I feel like if you are motivated and you're good at what you do, then there are more opportunities to succeed. Because yeah. I just feel like they genuinely are. Like, because funding, the North does attract funding as well, and funding is often part of, you know, surviving as an artist. Right. Not the only thing. You know, I, I'm a, I am a big fan of DIY movements and people sharing skills and making stuff happen. And it not being about the money, right? Um, but obviously, we've got to pay bills. So exactly. Yeah, exactly. I super love that kind of stuff, but it's it's definitely not what I'm doing at the moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But like for the same reason, like yeah. you've got to make a living in this world, <clears throat> and it's kind of unfair to to expect artists to do stuff for free. Like a yeah. lot of people do expect that. Um, and it's funny because it's like you wouldn't go into a coffee shop and expect to get a free coffee. Um, but people don't seem to sort of see the arts as the same thing. It's, it's, it's they, they expect us to do it because well, we do do it because we love it. That's why like, that's why they got it over us really because we'll do it anyway. Yeah, like, I feel like there's um, there's a need for entrepreneurship in the arts, and that I, I think the school system teaches us to um, expect handouts like big god put your head down, listen, work hard and the reward will be yours. And actually, and, and when I first left school and university even, I worked for big organisations, I worked for the NHS, I worked for local councils, um, library services, right. things that feel like a nice like paternal hand. you know. <laughs> um, but actually, um, and the idea of being self-employed was terrifying yeah. because I didn't have a, a nice, cosy financial background to to rely right. on you, you know like yeah, yeah. Um, but I think some artists possibly think that someone owes them a living yeah and they aren't necessarily thinking about it, who being realistic like who is my audience how much are they willing to pay for a ticket how many people am I going to get how long is it going to take to build a group yeah an audience yeah. and it takes years years uh, and that's sad yeah but that's how it is yeah everywhere no, yeah. North, South. Yeah, absolutely. I was at a question and answer with a, a, um, a poet and one of the students, it was, I'm doing my master's now in creative writing because I'm thinking about doing a PhD and I wanted, I didn't want to go straight into PhD because I thought, 
oh, I, I might not be academic anymore. Uh, it's been a long time. <laughs> um, so I'll do my master's and then think about the PhD. Um, and I was at a question answer with a, a poet and a younger poet, like a student, I said, oh, how do you get poetry audiences? And I just wanted to laugh because <laughs> I thought, yeah, it's a good question. Yeah. But like, they just take years yeah. to build. Yeah. That's how you get them. Well, that, <laughs> With a lot of hard work. Yeah, there's that, there's that like, uh, I don't know where the quote's from, but like it takes years and years and years to become an overnight success. Yeah. And like, that's what people don't see. They yeah. just see people when they're, when they're succeeding. And like, that's part of the way that the myths around the arts is created as well. Yeah. Like, no, none of us, I mean, I think both of us do, but, but mo- a lot of people don't talk about the hard work. They don't talk about the years in the wilderness. Like, you just see people when they're hitting, like, the headlines, and then you're like, wow, look, that's, like, how, how quick. They're, 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 just, they're just everywhere. And it's like, no, it took them years to get everywhere. Yeah, and if you look at my bookings and my gigs and stuff, like the performance side of it, you're like, oh, you're performing twice a month or maybe every week, depending on what happens in whatever area. And no one really knows what pound signs are attached to that. Right. So some, like, yeah, it might be 400 quid for 10 minutes, my most recent very expensive gig, or it might be 100 quid, or it might be 50, or it might be 30. And then you're thinking 30 pound minus the travel cost minus the time, because it's rude to go and just do your performance and go. You don't really want to do that. You want to stay there all night, and actually you might go earlier, and then you end up buying tea there. So then you're on minus figures. And then there's the things you do for nothing, because they're for a friend, or because you've no one who's interested in you in that physical area. Yeah, or it's for a charity, or whatever. Yeah, like like I did a gig in Landudno for a pacifist organisation, because I've got a collection that's about war and PTSD, and that performance fits nicely for people who are, you know, red poppy wearers or white poppy wearers. Yeah. Because the content is not it's not loaded content, it's just a story and, and it fits in both camps. But when I went on Dudnor, God bless them, you know, they paid me what they called in travel costs, but I was definitely down in terms of time, energy. You know, and I'm really glad I went. It was a really nice to work with a pacifist organisation and those people here, my story. Yeah. Um, but like well, that collection. You can't think about that, really. Well, that collection's <laughs> a really good example of what you're talking about in terms of thinking about your audiences as well. Like one of the things I really like about your work is that a lot of work in the arts that you come across is speaking to arts goers, and your work is speaking. It, yeah, it works for people who are arts goers in inverted commas, but it also speaks to other groups that are not people who would regularly go and say they're going to see poetry or going to see the arts or whatever like or theatre or dance or any of those things like that show in particular or like the material in it speaks to you know I guess you could say like everyday people or working class people or whatever mm. buzzwords people want to use yeah. around the general public um it speaks to people who are yeah who are not traditional visitors to certain kinds of arts because it's not right to say that anyone doesn't consume the arts it's just some people listen to Bon Jovi and some people go to the theatre yeah and uh your work speaks to a wider group of people I feel I mean yeah tell me if I'm wrong no but you're right and that's and, and that's part of what I aim for like right. it's not by accident no but I mean you know our degree was an experimental theatre yeah. degree <laughs> I'm perfectly comfortable with ideas around postmodernism and experimental yeah. work and I get what's going on and I sit I go and watch a lot of stuff a whole range of stuff but for me when I'm creating work 
I want it to be relatively accessible and I try and work in levels so that there are different levels of meaning so there's like a like an easy to reach meaning and then if you look into it there might be like a subtext that you may or may not get and there might be a further subtext that you may or may not get right. and people who like to analyse things and go through poetry word by word on the page have got something Yeah. and then people who just want to hear it yeah then they've got something as well. So that's part of the thing that I set myself in terms of when I'm writing work. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, like yeah. any, anything else. Um, and it goes both ways, like with that particular like collection and, and show, like you're talking to people who wouldn't necessarily come into art spaces, but you're also talking to people who come into art spaces about experiences that they're not normally exposed to. Right? Yeah. Yeah, because I think, um, I mean, Mike Gary's a poet who was based in Manchester, I think he lives in London now. Uh, and I, lo- I was, when I was just be- finding my feet and finding my voice as a writer, um, I heard him perform and thought, oh, I could do that. I thought, he's, make- he's writing about things that I know about. And I know that from my sort of like underprivileged background, like I grew up in a council house, you know, on benefits with a, a, quite a, a, a single parent family who was ill, first in the family to go to university, all that sort of thing. Area of multiple um, index of multiple deprivation, you know, in terms of statistics, really high up on that. So Nobody identifies their area as that when they live in the area. No, that you only realise when you're at university yeah, and right, then you right. start doing a project. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. This is the index yeah, of multiple yeah, yeah. deprivation. Yeah. Oh, I wonder where my area is. <laughs> oh, top 3%. Oh, I see. I'm like, okay, fair enough, whatever. I'm, you know, I've not moved away from Wigan. Right. I think there's a bit of a snobbery around that. Oh, you still live in your hometown? Yeah. Yeah, I do still live in my hometown. I, I met someone from my hometown. I had children. And once you have children you want a community to help you raise that child i mean i, I really feel sorry for people having babies in cities with no familial support or even if you've got like poor relationship with your families you know friends who can support you with childcare because it's not a one person job raising a child so no right 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 i mean and and, and also it's it's a you know a community and a location that, that they mean a lot they can mean a lot of things to you. Do you know what I mean? They can give you a lot of nourishment. Like people like to think of like, uh, you know, council estates or whatever is just being deprived because that's the <laughs> kind of words people like to use. Yeah. But there's all sorts of different kinds of, de- of de- deprivation. And sometimes, you know, in very posh areas or whatever, they're, they're deprived in different ways. Yeah. And, and I'm not saying like that, that, that when it all shakes down that people who have a lot of money aren't better off. They are. Yeah. But it depends what you mean. I, I really don't like the inverse snobbery. Yeah. Like I really feel like none of us can help who we are and how we are. We, we're not, none of us can help where we were born. Right. None of us can help the circumstances that, that shaped us. We can decide who we are as people and we can look at the world and weigh up what we want to do in it. That's something that like, I... I just like people, so I, I don't like it when there's a right. kind of like the us and them dichotomy of right. like working class versus middle classes versus upper classes. I just feel like it's really unhealth, well, unhealthy. Class is a weird thing anyway, because like, people should understand that as much as class is really useful as a way of looking at the world, in Britain at least, it's also a system that was designed by the upper classes and then imposed on everybody. Like, so when we're like disliking each other, like, oh, they're 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 lower middle class, they're upper middle, like whatever. That, that's that's what they want. They want yeah. us to like have these problems with each other. But also, class isn't as simple as that. Like, 
I'm middle class because I, you know, my mum was a social worker and my dad was a documentary filmmaker. But my mum was born into an upper class family. Before she was a social worker, she was a nurse, which is a working class job. Like my dad was retired when I was born. So what the hell financially does that make him? And he did documentary film in the coal mines. So he had like a, a, a massive direct experience of, of the working class communities as they were dying, as being killed off, like as everything that happened in the coal industry uh, that happened a little bit before our time. Um, and like I went to a comprehensive school. My best friends lived in Ely in Cardiff, which is the biggest council estate in, the, I think, the, in Europe. Uh, at least it was uh, when I was hanging out there every day to avoid being bullied at school. Yeah. So do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. what class am I? Like, I'm very comfortable in a, in a like, what you'd call a working class council estate front room, playing computer games with my mates and eating, you know, cheap food. Yeah. Um, like, more comfortable there than I am in a, you know, place with a lot of knives and forks. Yeah, yeah, it is, it, yeah, it is, um, it is quite tricky, but I suppose when we, t- we talked about, like, um, stories, um, and, and those, those are the sorts of, Stories that are perhaps unre- unrepresented right. in literature, aren't they? Yeah. And not, I, I, yeah, I don't know about other forms, but in the literature, like definitely those stories are underrepresented, and um, it's quite like a privilege, and also like quite lucky to be in a position where I'm a writer. Oh, my direct personal experiences are actually something that not many people right. write in about as much. You yeah. Know? So like, it gives you quite a, a fortunate place to be in. Yeah, I mean, I remember thinking that even all those years ago back at university when we were, like, meeting the people who were going to work on that project, like, I was really pleased to have you working on that project because you brought a perspective that wasn't necessarily being, uh, you know, pretty... I don't think that... I think probably you were the only person who you could call working class in that group. I'm not sure uh, there was an American, so that's always confusing about class. Yeah, I don't think... Yeah, and and maybe... She's doing really well in, as well now. She's like marketing person and right. personal life guru. And, and, and actually, stuff. to be fair, to be fair, there was also uh, Jed, who, who, who is probably working class. But that's the thing. All of us being at university complicates that, right? Because oh, yeah? in theory going to university changes your class although in practice I think it's much more complicated than that and that's only one way of looking at class yeah 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 and but like but I definitely remember thinking like I'm so glad Louise is like part of this like it's because you know you can be in these bubbles and it's dangerous being in those bubbles and and, and like um, it's funny because with my accent as well like with living it changed when I went to uni slightly and when I was a, a tiny child we lived in London for a bit so when, when I first was learning to speak I spoke really nicely and then moved back to Wigan and um, became more broad and then went to university lost it a little bit then settled in Wigan and I've like, now I've got a Wigan accent again um, but when I go and perform so I like, might dress slightly bohemian or look like quite arty sometimes or sometimes I might dress a bit more chavvy depending <laughs> on what mood I'm in um, but if I dress particularly in an arty way uh, and there's a poet coming um, the people expect me to think to sound a certain way right. as soon as I open my mouth people laugh and they're like oh she's going to be funny and they just assume, woman on stage, northern, comic. Right, right, right. <laughs> Which 
it's fine because I've I've been having a little go doing a little bit more comedy seeing as I appear to have these natural attributes um but when really when I'm uh, most of the stuff like my my first place to start writing is probably about dark stuff. Yeah, right. That when people laughing on places. Were, it's, like, it's, yeah, it's why you were a great fit for stand-up tragedy. Yeah. Like because you you do talk about dark things, but in an accessible way. But then it's, it's interesting this thing about like accent, isn't it? Because you said then like I used I did I spoke nicely, and I, like it's like I like your accent. Like I like the Wigan accent. One of the, like I don't necessarily hear it and go, oh, this is going to be hilarious and funny. <laughs> But I listen to, I go, oh, that's, that is, I think it's musical. Mm. Like, I think the Wigan accent is, is, is musical. When you, certainly when you're on stage and performing, there's a, there's a real kind of beauty in your accent as well as in the way you use your voice, you know, because you're a talented performer. Well, and when I got, uh, this, when I first went from like freelancing part-time to freelancing full-time, which is about maybe four years ago, was it maybe four years ago? Yeah, yeah. I think um, I got a New Voices award from the BBC Radio 3 and got like a little commission to create some work. And Ian McMillan is the poet who presents that show, like The Verb, on um, BBC Radio 3. Um, he said, oh, he liked my vowel sounds in terms of rhyme. And I thought, oh, yeah, it means I've got like a quite a unique palette to right. work with. You can rhyme words that rhyme. other people can't rhyme. No, which sometimes works, <laughs> yeah. particularly in performance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I wrote a poem for um, someone who passed away, you know, to be read at the funeral. And I'd, and I'd written it, and I thought, oh, I'm quite happy with this piece. And I thought, oh, the vicar's going to be reading it. And I thought, oh, is it rude to go up to him beforehand and just tell him which words rhyme? Because right. <laughs> when he says it, they might not rhyme. He's, I can't remember what words it were. And I didn't, because, you know... It's just weird. Uh, and then he said it, and the words didn't rhyme, and I was just like, ruined it, mate. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Vickers aren't the best spoken word performers, no. as, a, as a rule. As a rule. Poor Vickers. I know, I, know, I know some Vickers who, who, can, who can probably do some good performance. Can drop some bars. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a performance role in, so, uh, yeah. in lots of ways. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but it's a, it's a performance role where people can get away with not having the performance chops because uh, people have to be there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah. It's it's it, it's really like yeah. It's interesting that you've you've stayed here and like you say, like people have a snobbery about that. Mm. I mean, I think I can understand why you have stayed in Wigan. I mean, you're it's a kind of champion of Wigan, right? in some ways like you 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 are like a believer in the people and what can happen here like yeah definitely i mean wigan's got a, a national maybe an international poor reputation in part due to um george orwell's success right so on the road to wigan pier but people have heard of road to wigan pier and there are a lot of connotations of wigan people have heard of wigan um and some people have knowledge of Wigan. Oh, has it got a pee? Oh, it's dirty in Wigan. And I think that's in part from stuff around the George Orwell time. Um, but then obviously it's got a reputation for Northern Seoul and lots of people right. travel to Wigan for Northern Seoul from all over the country. Um, and then um, Wigan rugby is quite big in the north, obviously not as big in the south. Um, but I think, um, and, and there was a column in like a girls' magazine was Would They Wear It in Wigan? You know, so like even all these girls buying, it wasn't cosmopolitan, it was something similar to that, but you know, 
would they work in Wigan column? You know, so like there's this kind of, I don't know, it has got a bit of a life outside, you know, maybe compared to other northern towns like Warrington or Bolton or Rochdale. Right. Um, where it's got a little bit more notoriety. But, I mean, for me, the transport links are great. It's cheap. Uh, I don't, I'm not, my voice has not been polluted with eight other people who all sound the same and there's not that echo chamber you all sound the same and you all speak the same sort of poetry and you can start to identify who's been listening to who I'm really happy about that it was not done on purpose but when I go to different places I think well I don't sound like you no it's true I mean you definitely in the spoken word scene you stand out because you do have a different accent but also you you don't fall into the same tricks like all the time that that like, don't get me wrong, there's loads of amazing spoken word out there, but there is also cliches that have developed within spoken word, and yeah. you, you don't subscribe to those, like, in your performances. No, and I'm really happy about that. And, like, <laughs> it doesn't mean that when those cliches and those same backs happen, it's not good. Yeah, like, they can be done oh, right, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and it's like a genre of music, isn't it? Like, I, I like this because it sounds a little bit like this, but actually you're... you're in, your individual words are different, but you're all doing it in the same way. But it's okay because I like it. Right. You know, like I think that's fine. But I'm glad I don't. It, does, that bit doesn't happen at least yeah. from our work. I mean, you you studied theatre and creative writing, um, and you were into into dance when I met you. I mean, you would, as we've said, like you would you did a bit of poetry in that show we did together, but you didn't see yourself as a poet then. No. I mean, how did that? How did that change happen for you? Okay, so when I was leaving Eunice, um, someone out of my year did say, let's form a theatre company. Let's stay in Lancaster and form a theatre company. I thought, are you ridiculous? Like, I've spent so many years being skint, there's absolutely no way I'm forming a theatre company. Like, I'd gone to university with the idea, I need a degree, what's the easiest degree I could get? Mm, Probably theatre studies and for me easy meant because there was a group mentality and you had to be part of a group and you had to go to rehearsals I knew I would achieve in that setting whereas when I did English as part of like in Lancaster you do three subjects I wasn't going to lectures I wasn't doing the work it was very solitary and at that time I needed other people to rely on me in order for me to be able to perform because left to my own devices I would spend all time working at KFC do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Not oh, going out drinking and dancing, not sure. studying. Um, so <laughs> yeah, for me, it was. I remember. Yeah. <laughs> that version. Yeah. Really yeah. Um, so that was a much more <laughs> pragmatic uh, way for me to achieve a degree, something with group mentality. That was, I've, even though we were in a lot of hours, it was. I don't know, it was a good way for me to get a degree. And then I just thought I would do HR or something. Um, I didn't have any real perception that people could work in the creative industries and that there would be a place in those industries for me. So then when I left uni, I spent 10 years working in the social sector. My thing was, I'm going to spend 40 hours a week now. What do I want to do with this time? So I thought, well, the best way to use this time is probably to help other people because I don't want to spend my time making money for other people. So helping other people seemed like a good way to spend your working life. Um, So I worked for the NHS for a long time and then I worked in children's homes and people referral units and working with vulnerable families in various roles, careers advice, and uh, I ended up in libraries because the careers service was decimating. And um, when when I had my second child, so about 
um, when she was one, so about 10 years ago, um, that's when I came back to writing. So I left uni, had a, I don't know how many years of just kind of working in the social sector, not doing anything creative. I don't think I dance, I think I, I don't think I did sport, I don't know what I did. I don't know what I did with that time. I think I spent my wages on clothes, you know, and I quite enjoyed having a regular wage and spending it on clothing. Um, and I only came back to write creating after I'd had my second child. And um, I had postnatal depression, and even though I was succeed, I was managing it, having two small, like two children a year apart, and the and the dad was away working away all the time in the army. I was managing it, but it was hard. But because of the children, I was taking them to rhyme times and dance with mom and all sorts of glue and stick activities to keep sane and all the time I was thinking I could be running these quite enjoy this this is fun quite enjoying all this and and I started writing again out of that kind of like I don't know it must have stimulated something again and so um then I started creating and writing and getting back into the whole art scene it's interesting isn't it like in those 10 years, you did these jobs that, again, were plugging into real life. Like, the, like in inverted commas, people can't see me doing that. Um, but, <laughs> but, like, but, like, you know, dealing with kind of big issues. And it sounds like you're also dealing with personal big issues, like postnatal depression and your partner was away uh, in the army, which yeah. I, is what... that That's a lot of what the, the show we were talking about. about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and that's, you know, for... That, that should connect the dots for why that is appropriate for like people who wear the red poppy and the white poppy and what that what that material was about. I mean, but like you you're sort of having to deal with all of these things again that that aren't normally represented in the arts, and then you start writing, and so obviously you're going to write about those things. Yeah. Um, and like when you brought that to other people, you know that that was showing them something that they wouldn't normally necessarily see, but also that's a valuable thing like you said like people if it's not what other people are doing you, you've got a niche that other people aren't mining right yeah and, and I didn't consider myself a writer when I look at back to my university years um I was very much enjoying it like I loved I loved creating all the work we did at uni I loved studying experimental theatre I found it really interesting like um but I didn't know what else there was Right. Because I've been so, because Wigan was a cultural black hole in some ways, not for music and for going out and things like that, but in terms of theatre, right. I didn't really know what mainstream theatre looked like. Yeah, because you know, for people who didn't study contemporary experimental theatre at Lancaster University, <laughs> um, what that means is that you're studying a very specific genre. Like I, I felt lied to in a way because yeah. I, I, I thought contemporary and experimental meant contemporary. Which it wasn't. It was right. like all seventies stuff yeah. we were studying, and then experimental. But it wasn't that I thought you know because experimental to me meant anything. Um, but in fact, it was a specific kind of experimental theatre that we were studying, which is why I set up my own theatre company and why we took a show to Edinburgh yeah. outside of the, of theatre. But like, if you've had like you say like a cultural black hole is how you describe like yeah. Wigan, then you go to Lancaster, which is not it's not expanding your horizons it's giving you one idea of what art can be yeah and like there's loads more to the arts than that yeah and I find it very interesting (laughs) but like it just wasn't in any way I didn't see how that married with my view of the real world right you you know it wasn't very real no that's my that was my problem with it too and even though you know I had a different background whatever I was looking for yeah like for to write you know I wanted to write plays you know they didn't like scripts (laughs) 
I think like, when I, even when I look back at that though, like there were some times when I wrote. Obviously, I was doing a creative writing module, but yeah. that wasn't a taught module. It was just workshops. So, yeah, it was. Yeah. yeah, so which is fine, but now you can do taught modules, which must be amazing. But I feel like it must be better to do it once you've already lived a bit. Yeah. Because you've got so much more material to write about. Right. You know, like I feel like now for me is a good time to be writing because right. I've got a lot of stuff to write about. Whereas I think if you're you know, like in your early twenties, I'm not saying that you don't have anything to write about. I'm just saying it's not you've not as much. You no. definitely haven't got as much in terms of volume. Right. <laughs> and also you're not ready to write about it. I wouldn't have said in my early twenties that I had had much life experiences to write about I would have said you know oh yeah my life wasn't particularly like notable or memorable like now in my late 30s like I know that my early life was quite unusual and actually like had loads of traumas that I didn't necessarily know were traumas in my early 20s Um, and like I didn't have the perspective to write about the first like 18 years of my life when I was 18 yeah Um, whereas now that's all I ever bloody do write about. Like I'm looking to write about things that aren't my personal experience. Now I'm so sick of writing about my, my personal experience. Yeah. I think you, you get to that point as a writer, don't you? When you yeah. think, what, what, what can I do? What's not I? How else can I yeah. channel? Yeah. How can my I make creativity? Yeah. How can I imagine things again rather than looking at my own life again yeah. and again I th- and again? I think that's a problem with poetry as well. Yeah. Um, and I was looking like about what a collection might look like because. Um, Bernie and I very kindly offered to um, to, pr- to produce one of my books. So basically I'd written a book and was going to get it um, published by a small press and then loads of different things happened and I was really delayed in doing my bit and it just went off the the burn and the the, public, the, the little press were like, well, I, you know, I don't think it's going to happen now. If you want to take it out, so that's fine. And I thought, oh, maybe I'll self-publish and then it's quite technical loading everything and oh I don't do that and then I thought do you know what I'm selling myself short here I've got a full book here that's supposed to have been coming out for about three two or three years and um, why don't I just approach the big presses the big publishers and then as they start saying no work my way down right. and then if no one else will do it then I'll self-publish you know because there's no real rush to get it out there right I mean there is a rush in that I'm doing loads of gigs and I did a with um, John Cooper Clark and his fans want to buy all sorts and the other writers are selling their books and I'm selling my CDs from my spoken, the spoken word label I'm on um, so that was fine selling the CDs but really people want to buy books so you're missing out on a massive income there like yeah. other people are making like an extra 50 quid a night by selling the books right. when you're like oh I'm not really selling as much I'm only selling free things rather than um, so there was a bit of a time pressure in terms of getting the book out but now I've just thought do you know what I want to be really happy with what goes out rather than just feel like I've flung it out there just to sell some copies and actually when people are taking it on reading it some of it's a bit dodgy right and not really happy with it so I'm doing my masters now I'm doing my masters in creative writing with a view to kind of sharpening up all that work ready for the page because some of the work all of the work works in performance some of the work I've written I don't perform because it doesn't work in performance so it would be nice to get that out there as a reader and some of the stuff I do in performance needs tinkering with to work on the stage because when you're listening to something I feel like you need a bit more information and rhyme's really really useful when you're listening to something uh, and so is rhythm whereas when you're reading it it's not as important you can give the reader less and they'll have a better experience no right so I'm just kind of like Paring all the work down, getting rid of unnecessary bits, 
giving the reader less. So they have to work a bit harder to get more, which is what a lot of readers like. Whereas when you're listening to it, you kind of want to know what's going on, I think. Yeah. I mean, at least you had the CDs to sell, though, because, I mean, and, and, like, I can see a real value in, in... in your stuff as CDs because your voice is so great to listen to like I think that I'm sure that that appealed at least to some of John Cooper Clark's audiences I'm sure yeah well like John Cooper Clark's audiences loved me and they loved the other support acts like Tori as the main support Tori Garbutt and and Mike Gary supports and Luke Wright supports and Claire Ferguson Walker so like they're the kind of the main supports and depending whereabouts Johnny Johnny yeah. is. He's, he's going by Dr. John Cooper. Yeah, now, yeah, yeah, one of the universities. I think Salford Gina gave him an honorary, an honorary doctor. I'm going to earn mine. That's, like, I was never bothered about going to uni. I only thought I'd go because, you know, that's like a way to be, be affluent or at least <laughs> to have your own house and a car. Yeah. Um, but now I'm thinking about doing my PhD. I think I really would like to be a doctor. Yeah. You know, I really like the idea of that. Oh, Doctor, exactly. Why not? Yeah, why not? Like, because you only live, I suppose we know, you only live once, don't we? <laughs> so, like, when I'm really old, I, I'd like to think, oh, look at that, that was quite good. I think I'd be proud of myself for doing that. <laughs> and I think, and the PhD I'd like to do is exploring the relationship between dance and poetry and performance. Right. Um, and you're going back to dance in yeah. some ways. And also, you, you're working on music projects as well. <laughs> yeah. In part, like, I was poet in res- uh, residence at Kendall Collin a few years ago and I normally perform at that festival every year more or less and one year Kate Tempest came and did her music thing and they'd won the Mercury Music Award or whatever yeah. they won and I was and the tent was full and you know I like her work um, I'm not a huge huge fan but I do like her yeah, work yeah. Um, so I was like oh I could definitely do that and then with Sleaford's Mod coming out and I really like the work of Sleaford Mods I thought I could do that so that's how I started my poetry journey, thinking, hmm, I could do that. That's how yeah. I started my journey doing teaching, seeing other people run sessions, thinking, oh, I could probably do that. So it's the same thing was the music, oh, I could do that. And like, because I've been working at an arts venue and they've got a big music scene, um, and I've seen how they book people and how it works, I don't have any visions of like being top of the pops. I just know that it's a really fun experience to go to festivals and perform. It's better to go and perform than it is to go with someone just watching. Because when you go to perform, you get to perform, you often get there for free, you meet more interesting people usually, and you get to watch as well. So it's just like a lifestyle choice really, and it feels like a hobby. So I've (laughs) I've got two little projects, one's called Word Witch, and that's my solo project. So what I do is I work with synth musicians uh, they give me some tracks, I write over the top of it, uh, I find some random footage to go behind, so there's like a mix between the, the messages in the footage, me doing the performance and the music stuff. And I do like to sing a little bit on some of the choruses, but my singing is not my best feature. Um, however, like there's loads of musicians, there's loads of music people who can't sing, aren't there? Yeah, loads. Well, I mean, it depends what you mean by can't sing as well, right? Yeah. yeah. It's not particularly pleasant to the ear. Maybe it's a bit shouty or... A lot of my favourite musicians are people who are are considered to not be able to sing. You know, like Joy Division or like Tom Waits. There's lots of... Bob Dylan's not Bob Dylan's not good, is he? But I mean, it depends. Like, I like not good. 
Like, yeah, so well, is it not? Is it good then? Like, if you like it, it's probably good. Like. Well, that people like that watching them has, give, have been giving me inspiration to say, look, just crack on with it. Don't be embarrassed. Just right. do it. Um, Nico from the Velvet Underground is like the the, the, the woman version of, of of Bob Dylan or whatever, and I love. I like. I, I wish Nico had sung a lot more songs. You know. Well, I re- I really like. Um, so for Word Witch, I was like, I'm going to make a mood board of all the all the music I like to see what could come of it if I was going to make some music. Um, and it's frustrating for me not having those because I can play instruments. Like I can play violin and I can read music. So in theory, you would think I could make my own music and I did go down that route initially trying to work out like drum machines and like oh no it's too much I d- it's just I mean, too it's much like, it's me. another craft to learn yeah it's you just know? the journey's too long yeah. for my timeline I'd just rather work with musicians who are quite yeah. happy to work with me give me a track work with me and then create something on the top of it um, so I made this mood board and I had like Deanne Tward on her, this um, South African dance act where I just love her I love watching her videos and I'm just like oh I really wish I could be Deanne Tward when I grow up <laughs> um, so I like her and the streets obviously and then like Depeche Mode and, and 80s industrial stuff right um, and Sleep of Mods and then I've just made some stuff so that's Word Witch which is and I tend to write about stuff like I don't know, like a science fiction story I read when I was younger, and it's a bit underclass, but it's also kind of arty. You know, I write bits of artists that I like, and yeah. um, and then Slummy Eve is the music project I have with Toria Garbutt, who's um, another poet. She's based in Yorkshire. She's amazing, and we're both on the Into Some Folk spoken word label, and that's how we met. Um, and me and Tori write together, but our stuff's more like single parent, a bit more scrubbery, a bit more raucous, a bit more like like sex and drugs. Like the stuff that um, I can say to my mum, oh, Tori wrote that lyric, mum. <laughs> <laughs> I might be saying it, but Tori wrote it. <laughs> like, Tori's a bit more anarchist. Tori's more like a rock star than me. I'm not really like a rock star. I'm the sort of person who puts people in taxis at the end of a night out. You know, like, oh, having a good time. Would you like to get in a taxi home? Yes, you go. Oh. <laughs> I don't know. You've got a, you've, you've had your rock star moments, yeah. as you imagine. Yeah, I mean, you know, I do have a lot. I've got a, a subtext of rock star, yeah. but <laughs> I've not got any drink or addiction problems right. or well, mental that, health issues that's, really that's, largely. That's, that's a good balance. Yeah. That's, the, that's the right part of rock star to take. Yeah. Like, the, the, those aren't the fun bits. Yeah, as much as that everyone thinks they're going to be fun, they're mm. not. They're not the fun bits. Well, I'd like to write a show called Cult of the Rock Star. Uh, I think that'd be a really nice show for me and Tori to do together. We talked about taking a show to Edinburgh, but we've just not sorted out any funding or anything for it yet. I mean, I know we don't need funding, but it'd be nice to get some. I mean, to... you don't need no. funding, but like you might need funding, like for your own like mental health and like well-being. Yeah, like taking a show to Edinburgh with no funding is hard. It's just so stressful, isn't and, it? You know. Yeah. So I, I just feel like yeah. So we might do um, Call to the Rockstar, and then. For the MA, I'm writing... So the first book is called Bird Street and Other Love Stories. So it's not been published yet. Still not worked out what to do with it, but I'm going to send it to some big publishers this year, which is part of the reason I'm doing the Masters, so I can focus on sending that out. Yeah. Fly free! And you're like... Your, your work, like that collection that you're putting together and also, you know, shows I've seen that you've done in the past and sets I've seen that you've done in the past is, as you say, kind of about your personal experience a lot of it. Yeah. I mean, how do you find that that dance uh, that has to be done around making your personal life into your art, you know? Yeah. Like, thinking about 
the other people that you are like you're, yeah. to tell our own story we have to tell other people's stories because yeah. we're all connected like yeah. life isn't as simple as that and it's but it's tricky you know like there's a responsibility telling other people's stories and telling your version of other people's stories yeah I think like I've come to the conclusion that all I seem to want to write about is the things that I'm interested in right and sometimes there are things about my life and sometimes are things I see and with the poetry, I tend to write very directly and very close to the truth, but it's never entirely truthful. So sometimes I mask the truth with fiction. Right. One, for the reasons of a better story, and two, to, to distance myself a little bit emotionally from it. And stuff that I've written about the past doesn't feel very close to me emotionally. Right. So don't worry about... People worry for me sometimes, I think. like If I do the Love of a Battlefield stuff, it sounds like... I am quite emotionally involved as I'm performing it. And I do tap into those places while I'm performing it, but at a very superficial level. Right. So it doesn't linger with me after. I don't have any problems. And part of the point of writing it is that it helps work out them feelings. Right. It's part of the process of making it the past and not the present. And it's the form as well. I think, like, when you're dealing in poetry, the I think I heard uh, Travis Alabanza talk about this in a po- podcast I listened to recently of, like, when they're in a, like, trying to connect with the emotions of it and it's feeling too much, then they just focus on the craft, the way that the words are phrased. Yeah. And you can do that too, right? You, I, you can go into that. I write better when I am emotionally charged in right, some way or right. another. The writing is better because it's got a, like a, an energy behind it, a push behind it. So in some way you're finding things to trigger that passion. Like there's no point just sitting there looking at a blank page, going, tapping your finger on something, ooh, what should I write about? You, like, I just don't feel like that's really yeah. how my good work comes out, really. Yeah, no, I... um, but the other thing I do is with my children's work, I've explored right. issues via fiction, and I'm exploring real life issues. Like I, I did a children's show called The Sleepover, which is a reimagining of The Princess and the Pea. Yeah. And it's a story within a story. So it looks at the story of The Princess and the Pea, but really it's a story of a little girl who's visiting her dad and he's depressed. Now, that is totally subtextual. So grown-ups in the audience might recognise there's, there's a black dog in the story and the girl is scared of the black dog. So the grown-ups might recognise... The black yeah. dog's a metaphor for depression. The dad sleeps all the time. But in the story, the girl thinks the dad's been under a magic spell and how can she be the pea? How can she be... Because the pea wakes the princess. Wakes up, yeah. yeah, how can she be the pea and help daddy wake up? And she does all these different things about, you know, like the things that you should do to help keep yourself mental health there. Right. Like going outdoors and playing and helping someone and all these things you can try to make yourself feel better if you're unwell. Um, so... I'm really exploring a real-life issue around, you know, my partner's depression and my children going to visit him and how that feels for them. But you can't see that in the work. Right. No, sure. I mean, and that's an interesting... Because that's a whole other side of the work that you do is your children's work. Mm. I mean, and and again, that... When you you were going out with your young children and saying, oh, I can do that, like, that's one of the things that you now do is the kind of things that you would have gone to then in some ways. Yeah. Um... And it's interesting, like, I've had that in my kind of career of, like, I make very adult work and I make 
kind of stuff for children and like it's it's great to have those two different places you can go because they are so different and actually it's really nice if you've been doing loads of dark adult work to kind of like go out into the imaginative fun safe world of children's work and sometimes off for me the children's work feels less safe interesting because so, so like for in the sleepover um, the, car- the the little girl I called her Eloise just because I know loads of words that rhyme with my own name <laughs> and it was just a quick way to work with rhyme for Eloise um, but the little girl in it she, um, she you know her mum and dad are split up but she's quite happy with that and they have an amicable relationship. Her mum quite cheerfully says bye to little girl. And, you know, little girl's got a great relationship with mum and stepdad and little brother. And then goes over to see daddy. She's also got a great relationship. And everyone's got great relationships. You know, and, and I feel like on some level, people who are going through that and struggling and don't have great relationships with their exes, like, might be like, oh, I wish it could be like in this story. Well, it's a right. children's story. It can be whatever it wants to be. And actually, this is the ideal Ideally, you're aiming for healthy relationships. So I am, in a way, putting across my personal view that it's better for the children when the parents can get along. Obviously, if you've got a really abusive partner who's like a really horrible person, it's hard, I know that. But if you're both generally kind of within mainstream, you know, definitions of normal, um, you know, like you, you should be able to get on. Or at least get on so the child's not damaged. Right. So that's my driving force when I'm writing this. And, and I feel like, is this too... Am I hitting people over the head with this? Am I not hitting it? You know, I feel awkward in that because I think, am I kind of preaching here to people who might right, not like Right, it? it's getting the balance right. Yeah, so and when... I don't know if the balance is right. Right. No, and, and, and then also it's talking about depression in a very subliminal way. So I'm saying, oh... The Naughty Nana, who's one of the characters, Naughty Nana tells you to dance and play your music really loud. Go outside, you'll make me really proud. Help each other, make a cake, you know, and all this stuff, which is all true. <laughs> and people should be doing that. And I think children should have them skills. So I've kind of got a bit of an edge to it because I'm thinking children should have these skills. They should know. You know, there's a checklist of things you can try if you're feeling really sad or low. Yeah. You know, like they should know that. And children's literature is a great way to program them you know (laughs) so I feel like a bit uncomfortable sometimes that I'm pushing my world view I'm not pushing it onto them you know they've come to see a show did they know what they were getting but if it said in the show blurb it's about ways to stop feeling depressed and about how single parents should behave oh yes I'm going watching that that sounds great (laughs) (laughs) yeah but I mean I know what you mean actually I know what you mean. It, it's it, yeah, right. Whereas when you're doing it to adults, it's like more straightforward. They know that you're doing your view on the world, and what you say is less likely to be preaching and more likely to be demonstrating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like my, one of my other kids' shows are called um, "Robot Aliens Stole My iPig. Uh, and it's about uh, Dr. New, who's Dr. New, Dr. New, a very good friend of Dr. Who. Uh, she's like, <laughs> obviously a time lord, but we don't really say that. <laughs> Copyright, I don't know. Um, so Dr. New visits in the rescue ship with the binaries, who are like these two space detectives who she takes around with her, zero and one. And um, <laughs> the moral of the story is that it's about aliens and about, like, Dr. New thinks these robot aliens have stole her eye pig and she's chasing them and she thinks they're terrible. And then over the course of the story, 
she not too subtly realises that, you know, she misinterpreted the robot aliens. Right. And actually, right, right. they're doing good and, you know, we should kind of, like, be a bit more, like, less judgmental about people who are strange to us. Right. So that's kind right. of the gist of the story. And then I kind of, again, with that, I feel a bit uncomfortable when I'm performing it, thinking, the kids are loving it. Because there is this subtext for parents, and sometimes I think, are the parents thinking, what's she doing pushing? No, because I mean, I think, <laughs> I I think what, what most, you know, nearly all children's work has some kind of moral subtext. Um, and I think it's healthy to have a variety of different perspectives on that as well, because, you know, like when we're talking about like whose stories we hear, you know, middle class people have been making stuff for children for centuries. And so that's the, the only. The only like one of the, I really like the Moomin books by Tuve Anson, and one of the reasons I like those books is because her background like resonates with my background. Like she had like a crazy bohemian, complicated family, like arty, but like you know with traumas and sort of complications. And she's a lesbian li- living in a country where her um, you know sexuality was illegal at the time. Um, so all of those things have kind of gone into her work and have kind of created this stuff that as a child really appealed to me because it wasn't about like your 2.4 children family being happy but they were happy because she was making it you know making it nice for children the same way that you you are and so when I read those stories I was like yeah complicated families can have can be happy Um, and so it actually gave me really useful things as a child and like I could see my family reflected back at me but in a positive way yeah you know and I think that's really valuable it's it's terrible when when you're reading literature to children it's all mummies and daddies and daddy does this and daddy does that and like when if fathers aren't involved you've I mean, I was brought up a single parent and I, I, I was an only child of a single parent and my dad wasn't involved in my life. But it wasn't a problem for me. And I'd, it wasn't really a problem reading literature about it. But neither was there any literature that in any way reflected my experience. Right. Not until I was a lot older was I seen reading anything that... I remember watching Orange is Not the Only Fruit as a, right. a, as a teenager and then reading it since... And thinking that you know, I'm really resonating with it, even though like I didn't have struggles as a young lesbian. Right. You know, like but that, the word, but the, it's the world right, was the world, right. Yeah. The world felt, you know, and God bless my mom, she'd let me watch it. You know, right. she wasn't like in any way prescriptive about that sort of thing. But it's rare. I mean, when we talk about representation, there are loads of groups that we don't even mention, even when we're talking about representation. Like it's so hard to to see yourself. Like so rare to see yourself, whatever your background, in some ways, because it's we're all so specific. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and, and I, I, I often think that, like, even like I, I tick all the boxes that say I'm overrepresented, and it's true. Like middle class white men are everywhere. Don't get me wrong, but I very rarely see any characters that correspond in any way with my life experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even then, yeah, because it's how they're making the boxes, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's been. I mean, it's 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 been over an hour, so I'm gonna gonna <laughs> yeah. get to the last question. 
Um, but it's been a real pleasure getting better acquainted with you. I mean, we've before we were recording, we've sort of hung out in Wigan as well. So it's been a nice, uh, a nice half day for me. So thanks oh, so much yeah. for, for providing it. Um, the last question I ask everybody is: Have you got anything to plug? Have I got anything to plug? Um, when's it going out? Uh, it'll go out um, next week, probably. Yeah, next, November. Next, next Wednesday. Okay, so I'm performing on the first of December in Liverpool at a cinema for all event. Um, so that should be good. It's got some like women punky musicians on me, but a load of film footage and um, based and it based on women. <laughs> I don't know, but like women from the past. I think obviously done a good plug of that. Um, but <laughs> um, I'll be advertising it on my Twitter at Louise the Poet. Um, so. If you want to, if you want anywhere near Liverpool and you want to come to that event, that should be lovely. And I think it's only three quid a ticket, so it's like super reasonably priced. And then um, I'd really like it if people kind of um, followed my word witch Twitter, because um, Slummy Eve, the, the joint music project, is a bit slower getting off. Whereas because um, Word Witch is just me and the musicians who are giving me the tracks, it's a lot quicker. So I've got Word Witch performances. I think I've got one at Edge Hill um, at the university and one in the Bailiff's Bone, Wigan at the Old Courts, coming up in the next couple of months. So, um, yeah, just follow Word Witch and so you can see my stuff when I get some stuff online. Right. And so no, I feel like a child on I'm quite excited about Word Witch. Well. Yeah, and, then, and also if people are interested in your poetry that we were talking about, that's at, <laughs> that's at Nymphs and Nymphs and folks right? yeah and some thugs yeah you can buy it from there you can there's two cds and um, one's the love is a battlefield collection which is underscored by music from lee athburn and it's just a, i'm really proud of that collection like i think it's a really good collection yeah it's great oh, and then the other one bird streets a mix and match of poetry um so there's some lighter stuff some dark stuff it's just a bit of a crazy match this match Brilliant. Well, and the last thing I ask my guests uh, to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Ah, goodbye. Thank you for listening. Bye, everyone. Bye. So first of all, the extra plugs that I generally give, uh, please do support my book, Mansplaining Masculinity, to get made. Uh, You can find out more about that book and all of the other things that have gone into the making of that book at mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk and you can support it by going to unbound.com forward slash mansplaining hyphen masculinity Uh, so please do do that because if without your support without you pre-ordering that book it can't happen i've recently written a medium piece called what about the women which is kind of an extension of some of the work i've been doing so do please check out that medium piece and while i'm talking about medium pieces i also recently put out a ninth piece in my series down to a sunless sea memories of my dad which are uh pieces about my relationship with my dad but also uh, his relationship with dementia and growing old and what's been happening as that has happened to our relationship and to him and all that sort of stuff. As per usual, there will be links in the show notes that will take you to them. Uh, And similarly, I also do another podcast, The Family Tree, which will be coming out in January 2019. So now's a good time to catch up with seasons one and season two, uh, ready for that season three. It's also a great time to go over to the Family Tree's Patreon campaign and become a patron uh, and support what we do. If you've listened to Getting Better Acquainted for free for, for years, then that's definitely something that would be really appreciated if you could help me to make that 
final season of The Family Tree. That would be an amazing present to me. As I said at the beginning of the episode, the current plan is for Getting Better Acquainted to go on hiatus. So there'll be a break until somewhere in December when a Christmas episode will come out. And that will be the 350th episode of Getting Better Acquainted. And it seems like an appropriate number, an appropriate moment to have an ending of sorts. Although there'll also be the yearly Getting Better Acquainted extra in the new year, which will be me reflecting on the last year, but also on all of the years of making Getting Better Acquainted since 2011. The feed and the archive of all of those episodes, and remember it's a lot more than 350 episodes actually because that's just the 350 uh, that I've numbered in that particular way. There have been lots of live episodes that don't get included in that numbering. There have been lots of extra episodes that have not been included in that numbering. Sometimes episodes have been two-parters and so both halves have counted as the same episode. And also there's been lots of in recent years getting better acquainted replayed episodes where I've replayed old episodes but I've also recorded a current and contemporary commentary on uh, those episodes so they're kind of new episodes in their own right as well so there's loads and loads of content if you've just found getting better acquainted and you're like oh I want to listen to this every week well you still can because you can listen to a new old episode every week Um, going back to 2011 where I do not vouch for myself or my opinions or and my accent is very different from my accent now but the feed and the archive will remain and no doubt I'm going to put out bits and bobs on the feed as they happen in my life like there may be new episodes that come out or special episodes that come out or for example I'm intending to make a new podcast series uh, relatively soon where I'm going to be turning those medium pieces about my dad into audio pieces and then I will put them out on the new podcast feed for them but I will also put them out on Getting Better Acquainted and I may go back to some of my other projects and share some of those bits and bobs on this feed going forward so you might get kind of the the actual masculinity show might come out at some point on the feed or uh, some of the best highlights from the stand-up tragedy podcast this isn't necessarily the end I mean what is an ending anyway often endings aren't really about something stopping but more about something changing so I may very well take up getting better acquainted uh, in the future either as a return to its original weekly format or else into a more manageable format which maybe goes out every two weeks or every month or something like that in the future so my reasons for all of this change and for this hiatus are many and varied. A lot has changed in the world of podcasting since I started the show and I feel that going forwards, if I'm going to continue working in this medium on projects that don't actually pay me, uh, then I want those projects that I'm making for love uh, to be podcasts that are more considered and more edited. Also, I've got a few more regular editing production gigs. I'm going to be able to get some of the things that I've got from making Getting Better Acquainted over the years from doing that work. I've just started doing production work on Sophie Hagen's podcast, 
Made of Human, which is a brilliant conversation podcast. She has conversations with different people that she knows or that she's come across. Uh, it's not the same format as Getting Better Acquainted, really, but there are kind of echoes between the two shows. And so I'm really pleased to be working on that and getting some of my uh, conversation fix from that. Um, but it's even more of a delight than making Getting Better Acquainted because I'm not listening to myself, so I'm not being uh, self-critical the whole way through editing it. I'm also potentially on the lookout for part-time jobs because I'd like to get some stability in my life and stop this constant worry of kind of precarity of like I don't know what's going to happen to me so if I get a part-time job then that's definitely going to mean that something has to give so I'm letting getting better acquainted fall away now so that I can do it with care and give it the send-off that I want it to have rather than a sudden stop that might happen if I suddenly got busy. Similarly, if mansplaining masculinity does ever get funded, and remember, that's something that you can help make happen. Uh, So please do go and do that if you haven't and you have the money and you'd like to. But if it does get funded, then I'm going to need time to write that book. And I want to do other work that isn't based around podcasts. I want to write some novels and uh, write some songs and sing some songs, uh, things that I used to do a lot more of before podcasting became the main focus of my creative outlook. Sadly, to have room for new stuff, you have to give up the old stuff. And just as I was sad to stop doing stand-up tragedy or before that, uh, apples for everyone, uh, I'm going to be sad to say goodbye to getting better acquainted. But Similarly, I'm glad to have worked on all of those projects uh, and I'm also glad to have the time to work on new things. Getting better acquainted has changed my life, I think, it's fair to say. I actually think that it's helped me to become a better person, although I still have quite a way to go on that. Doing Getting Better Acquainted has led me to so many things that I would never have had the opportunity to do if I hadn't started recording conversations with people. Uh, It's shaped my life as well as documenting it and I feel like this is a good time to stop it or pause it while I still love it and while I still believe in it. And during a time when I'm changing so many other things in my life anyway, like I've moved to Lancaster, uh, I've stopped smoking, I'm now vaping, those kinds of things. So it's, it's, it's a kind of a moment of change. And as Irvin Welsh said in, in his book Glue, although it wasn't actually him that said it, it was a character he wrote, um, life is a dynamic rather than a static process. And when we don't change, it kills us. It's not running away. It's moving on. As I said at the beginning, it would be great if you've listened to the show over the years and you've enjoyed it. If you could reach out to me and, and tell me what that experience has been like. Uh, again, it's GBA Podcast at gmail.com if you want to send me an email. I'm GooseFat101 on Twitter or there's a GBA Podcast Twitter feed as well if you want to send straight to that. Uh, Getting Better Acquainted can be found everywhere that podcasts can be found on the internet, basically. It's even on Spotify, finally, um, thankfully. Uh, So it's there in all these different places and you can listen to the archive and you can subscribe for whatever comes on the feed in coming months and years uh, in those places. 
Since I made this decision, a few people who I didn't know have reached out to me because I made an announcement on on Facebook, uh, on the Getting Better Acquainted Facebook page because you can find it on Facebook and Twitter and all those places. And people have reached out and that's really meant a lot. And thank you to those people who have uh, told me what they've found and felt about the process of doing the show and uh, thank you for, for expressing your gratitude to me for the work that I've done. Um, thank you. Uh, from the bottom of my heart full gratitude to you for for listening both people I know and people I don't know uh, people all over the world because I see the stats who've listened to this show uh, since it started I'm really grateful for all of you uh, for doing that thank you so much for joining me on this ride and remember There are lots of ways to get better acquainted.